Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Samuel David Luzzatto, known by his Hebrew acronym Shadal, was the leading Italian Jewish scholar of the 19th century. Now, for the first time, an all-English version of Shadal's text translation and unabridged commentary on the Book of Numbers, Bemidbar, is available through Kodesh Press. Luzzatto's work was translated and edited by Daniel A. Klein, who also offers copious explanatory notes as well as two appendices, offering translations of Shadal's poetry and letters. Tune in as we speak with Daniel Klein about his recent publication, Shadal on Numbers. You're listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Daniel A. Klein is an attorney and legal writer and a graduate of Yeshiva University and New York University School of Law. His study of Italian as a youthful hobby led to a fascination with Italian Jewish culture, and in particular the works of Shadal. He and his wife live in Rochester, New York, where he has taught Judaic studies at elementary, high school, and adult levels. Through Kadesh Press, he has also translated Shadal's commentaries on Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Dan, welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you for having me. Give us a brief orientation to Luzzatto and how you got interested in him. Okay. First of all, one should know that um, Shmuel David Samuel David Luzzatto known as Shadal, as an acronym from his name, is probably the most important Italian Jewish scholar of the 19th century. He lived from 1800 to 1865, which I always point out is about the same time span as Abraham Lincoln, to put it in perspective. He was a linguist, he was an educator, he was a religious thinker, perhaps most of all, a Bible commentator. Um, What appeals to me about him is that he was a traditionalist and yet modern at the same time. When I say traditionalist, I mean he um, very much believed that the Bible was a divinely inspired and authored document. Um, He maintained an orthodox religious lifestyle. He um, accepted the term orthodox when it was a fairly new label back in the 19th century. And yet, he was very much aware of and attuned to modern scholarship of his time and methods of study of those times. Um, He adopted those methods in his interpretations, and he quoted a very wide variety of sources, uh, ancient and modern, Jewish and non-Jewish, which is a wider range than um, most people of, of his time or place. So as a result, I like to point out that even today's readers may find many of his interpretations fresh and novel. Uh, the question, of course, also is how I got interested in Shadal. It's a very long story, which I will try to boil down. Uh, it begins when I took up a study of the Italian language as a hobby back in, believe it or not, 1966. And uh, how I got interested in that, my father basically challenged all of his children to learn a new language. And that was that was the language I ended up with. Then what happened was my grandmother, who had studied Italian in college, showed me a book that she thought I'd be interested in. It was one of the volumes of the original edition of Shadal from 1871. And 
this volume, I would show you if I could. It has uh, part of the page is Italian translation of the text, and part of the page is his Hebrew commentary on the text. Two things he wrote in different stages of his life, but were printed together after his death. So at first, I looked at the Italian part, and I thought, gee, this is interesting, all these interest, uh, uh, verses that I'm very familiar with in Hebrew and in English, here they are in Italian. One of my favorite examples is, Dio disse sia luce e fu luce. God said, let there be light, and there was light. It sounds more musical in Italian. Um, then as I began to look down at the other part of the page to his Hebrew commentary, um, I said to myself, Sense. And as I studied it more and more, about 10 years after my first exposure to Italian, I realized I have an interesting skill set here. I know Hebrew from school. I know Italian from my own study. Um, most people don't have those two skills together, and most people have not heard of Shadal before, and here I am in a, in a position to be able to make him better known to the world. So I began... As I said, in 1976, I've been working on it ever since, and uh, here we are. I've finished four volumes, and hopefully the fifth will be not too far. In your introduction, you observe that the Collegio Rubinico was the forum for much of Shadal's scholarship and the incubator for many of his most important works. Would you tell us about this Collegio? Uh, yes. This is a school that really is not terribly well-known outside of Italy, but should be better known. Um it was founded in, the Collegio Rabbinico means rabbinical college. It was founded in 1829 in the city of Padua, or Padova in Italian. Uh, it still is in existence. It's in Rome now. We'll, we'll get to that in, in just a bit. It was the first school of its kind probably in the whole world, in the sense that it was a modern training school for community rabbis. It wasn't a yeshiva in the traditional sense where people would learn for many years without any particular goal, just learning for the sake of learning. Um, this was a training school. Uh, it was, one might say, orthodox in orientation. Uh, the curriculum was not exactly traditional, but it covered um, not only the Talmud, but also, as we will see, Hebrew language, Jewish history, uh, that sort of thing. What made it extremely modern for its time is that part of the training, before you could become ordained as a rabbi, you had to go through a practice period under some local rabbi to learn pastoral skills. This is something that even today, some rabbinical schools don't really emphasize as perhaps as much as they should, and it was a very forward-looking thing at the time. Uh, what's interesting is how the school came about. Uh, at the time, Padua and the North, Northeast Italy were under the rule of the Austrian Empire. There was no uh, country called Italy yet at, at that time. The Austrian government at the time was interested in having the Jews become what they considered productive citizens. In particular, they wanted rabbis to have some sort of modern education. At the same time, the Jews of this area, which was uh, specifically Lombardy, Venetia, uh, the area around Mantua, Padua, and Venice, they were interested in becoming fully emancipated citizens but they were also interested in maintaining, not losing out on their Jewish identity. So what the Austrians wanted and what the Jews wanted really coincided quite well. And after a few years, they uh, did set up this Collegio, Collegio Rabbinico, which did serve its purpose in 
um, pleasing the Austrian government, which was kind of a co-founder of the institution, uh, as well as serving the communal needs of the Jews of the area. The school had its ups and downs. In 1871, it had to close. It reopened in 1887 as a national collegio rabbinico italiano. After a few years, it, uh, it it was in Rome, it was in Florence, it was back in Rome, um, but it's on a pretty solid footing nowadays and is still turning out Italian rabbis and teachers of Jewish uh, studies. So how does Shadal fit in? He was one of the first two professors, and he taught there from 1829 to his death in 1865. That was where he spent his entire career. Um, at the time, the school only had those two professors. What he taught was Bible, Hebrew language, Jewish history, and Jewish religious principles and ethics. And some of his major works, the, the reason I say that the school was sort of an incubator for his work is that some of his most important books were written for the benefit of his students because he felt that they didn't otherwise have um, the proper textbooks that would incorporate the Jewish knowledge and modern methods. Um, and especially in this category are his biblical commentaries that he wrote uh, primarily for those students and um, to make them a little bit uh, more usable for the, the general public. This is where I step in. Not only is English better understood than Hebrew in much of the world, but every now and then you really have to understand um, in more detail what he was trying to say. Well, I'll get into some of that a little bit later. Shadal's commentary on numbers is primarily the simple Peshat meaning, but sometimes he expresses his own innovations or explorations. Tell us about his exploration of the book's two villains, Korah and Balaam. This is something that I found really on my own. He didn't discuss them together. He discussed each of them separately, but a common theme emerges. Uh, let's first look at Korah. What, what made him tick? Most people view him as a populist or a demagogue or a revolutionary. Um, Shadal's focus on Korach and his group uh, was their religious outlook. And I'll read a little bit from his commentary. Um, they did not deny the wonders that Moses had done, nor did they attribute them to human trickery. But they also believed that by means of special worship rituals, God made an alliance with his priests and wise men who knew the ways of his worship and that he would do their bidding. Therefore, now that the tabernacle had been erected, this is uh, how the story um, fits into the book after the details of the tabernacle. Uh, now that it had been erected and the laws of the sacrifices and God's preferred worship rituals had been made known, uh, they were never a secret. It was always a matter of general knowledge. They thought that any man besides Moses or Aaron could be a priest or a prophet. And that's where they jumped in. Korach apparently had feelings of jealousy and feelings of uh, power hungriness. And he figured this was the way to get power by manipulating God. And moving on to Balaam or Bilam in Hebrew, uh, Shadal points out, something similar. He was an expert in all the worship practices of his day. He would tell the future by means of divination. As an expert in these practices, he would perform for each god, with a small g, the services that were favored by each one. He was a prophet for hire, in other words, and he believed that by such means he would be able to bring that god, with a small g, closer to or farther away from a particular person or nation. Um, this is what he tried to do with uh, God with a capital G. He attempted to manipulate God by offering certain sacrifices that he thought would be pleasing to him. 
Uh, of course, it didn't work out. And as I pointed out to you the last time we spoke, um, I succumbed to temptation and dropped a footnote here to Raiders of the Lost Ark because there's a parallel. If you remember what happened in that movie, there was this French archaeologist who, at the time he attempted to open up the Ark of the Covenant, he dressed himself up as a Jewish high priest and mumbled things that he thought a Jewish high priest would be mumbling. The uh, Nazi handlers were objecting to all of this Jewish stuff, and he said, no, it has to be done this way. Um, so he thought. Of course, it didn't work out for him very well either, if you remember what happened in the movie. But the bottom line, uh, what I'm pointing out, is that both Korach and Bilam thought that the way to power was through managing God with the right magic words rituals. Uh, this was Shadal's insight. You also mentioned a funny anecdote in Luzato's treatment of Moses' sin in Numbers 20. Would you elaborate on this? Yes. Um, every now and then, if you look very carefully in Shadal's commentary, there are subtle bits of humor. Uh, this is one of the more obvious examples, actually, that we're talking about now. Uh, the question arose, why was Moses not allowed to enter the promised land? Uh, he is accused of sinning in some way or other. It's not clear what God had in mind that was so objectionable. And so commentators have been talking for years about what was going on. Here's what Shadal had to say. Moses, our teacher, sinned one sin, but the commentators have heaped upon him 13 sins or more for each one of them invented a new transgression. As a result, all my life, I re refrained from investigating this matter in depth for fear that perhaps as a result of my investigations, there might come forth for me a new interpretation, and I too would have found myself adding on a new sin upon Moses. Um, luckily for Shadal, after a great deal of investigation, looking at old opinions, um, digging up sources that were not well known at all to the public at the time, he says, you know what, Rashi was right. Let's go back to what Rashi said, the most important Jewish commentator of all. Uh, it was very simply that Moses spoke to the rock, struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock as he had been commanded. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a great big diversions from what he'd been commanded to do, but it was important enough that he was kept from entering the promised land. And so in the end, Shadal did not have to uh, invent a new sin. Now, your work on Luzato is much more than mere translation. It often involves research and pursuing resolutions to puzzles in his text. Would you tell us about this experience? Uh, what I like to say to people is Shadal's commentary is crystal clear, except when it isn't. Um, his, his writing style is very beautiful. It, it, it's almost worth learning Hebrew to read it in the original. Um, on the other hand, sometimes what he says is in a shorthand manner. Sometimes it's kind of cryptic. Um, there are comments that just need to be fleshed out. And that was part of what I took as my task in translating, not just translating, but annotating and explaining. Um, here's an example. Uh, going back to Korach, uh, according to Shadal, he was not actually swallowed by the earth. Uh, it's, if you read the story, that's the way most people understand what happened. Uh, according to Shadal, and not only he, but uh, other commentators as well, what his fate was instead was he was burned to death with his followers who would, were attempting to offer up incense and whose offering was rejected. Um, but doesn't it say, Numbers 26, 10, and the earth opened its mouth and it swallowed them and Korach? It seems to contradict what Shadal was saying. 
Um, Shadal says that this means only that the earth swallowed the tent of Korach and his possessions. And how does Shadal support that idea? He cites a Latin passage from Virgil, from the Aeneid. He says, Yam proximus ardet ukalegon. End of comment. Now, doesn't that make it perfectly obvious what happened to Korach? Um, for, for some people who really know their Virgil, it might be perfectly obvious and how you can apply that to this incident. Um, I'm wondering if possibly his students at the time were well-versed enough in the classics to understand what he said. Maybe some of them were, but most of his readers, I'm sure, are not. And so it fell to me, to, out of my own curiosity and to satisfy readers' curiosity, I did some research into what Virgil had to say in the Aeneid. First of all, who was this Ucalagon that he talks about? He was one of the elders of Troy, whose house was burned when the city was destroyed. And it seems, if you look at the poem, Virgil apparently does not mean to say that Ucalagon himself died within his house. If you look at one of the translations of the Aeneid, it says, Diophobos's great house sank vanquished in the fire. Ucalagon's hard by was blazing. Not Ucalagon, Ucalagon's apostrophe S. In other words, at least according to this translation and possibly Virgil's original meaning was, it was only his house that burned. Uh, in the Latin again, it says, Yam uh, proximus ardet ukalagon, which sounds like ukalagon burned next, but least arguably means that not him but his house. So, too, possibly it was Korach's house and belongings and tent, whatever, uh, was uh, swallowed by the ground, but not Korach himself. And this is just an example of one of the things that I found really tantalizing and uh, in need of a great explanation. And hopefully now, uh, Shadal's English language readers can have a little bit better understanding of what's going on. Your translation of Shadal's commentary on numbers includes a few bonus features. Tell us about the appendices. All right. Um, at, in, the, in my last volume of Leviticus, it was a fairly short volume because there wasn't as much commentary in it as there had been in the previous volumes. And so at the suggestion of my editor, my publisher, uh, we put in some other writings of Shadal to kind of fill out the volume. We follow this practice in this one as well. The first appendix is a very interesting poem that Shadal wrote when he was no, no older than 25. It was published when he was 25. It's called On Ben Pellet, which is the name of one of Korach's confederates, which we see mentioned at the very beginning of the story and never again. It's kind of a mystery why he was mentioned, whatever happened to him, the um, Midrashic legend kind of stepped in to fill in the blank. And there's a very cute story about what happened to him. It turns out, according to this uh, legend, his wife was not at all willing for him to be uh, following the, the Korach conspiracy. She found a way to stop him. Um, she got him drunk. He fell asleep and missed the whole thing. And what Shadal did was he fleshed out the story in uh, verse form in Hebrew. Uh, it's interesting. The, the Hebrew is very biblical, but the, the rhythms are very Italian. It's, it's Shadal in a nutshell. And it's, it's a very charming retelling of the story. And I have, I've been wondering, would this actually work in a live performance? So a few weeks ago, I tried it out. Uh, I had a small audience at, at one of our local synagogues. I got a friend of mine to read the part of the wife of Onben Pellet. 
we read it out as a play. It only took about 10 or 15 minutes and uh, the audience loved it. So hopefully we'll have more performances. So um, I, I was able in my English translation to keep up much of the rhythm. I had to sacrifice the rhyme, but it, it does seem to work. And it's this charming retelling of the story. That's the first appendix. The longest second appendix is called Let Him Bray, the stormy correspondence of Samuel David Luzzato and Elia Benemoseg. Elia Benemoseg was what you might refer to as the other great Italian Jewish scholar of the 19th century. Um, they had many things in common, but the one great difference they had between them was that Benemoseg was a big supporter of Kabbalah, Kabbalistic studies. Um, Shadal was not. And it's a kind of a, a convoluted story, but they became kind of uh, pen pals in a way. Uh, toward the end of Shaddaw's life, in the 18, 1863-64, they began a correspondence in which they uh, exchanged their views, uh, argued quite vociferously. Uh, in between the arguments, uh, tried to tell each other what great friends they actually were. It was an interesting variation of tone in these letters and, and fascinating reading. These letters were written in Italian which means that until now, there really hasn't been a whole lot of exposure to them outside of Italy. So I decided what I should do is translate large chunks of these letters, not the whole thing because they go on and on. They're extraneous things that they're contained, but uh, the main parts of the letters I have presented in English. And it really makes quite fascinating reading. I, I have one little bit here, um, another example of Shadal's sarcastic humor, shall we say, uh, he takes exception to something that Ben Mosaic writes uh, in his book, which was a refutation of something that Shadal wrote in another book. He says, if this is what you have right at the beginning of your book, then um, it's just, it's surprising that you didn't say the following. And he, he quotes a very famous line from Dante and expands on it in his own way. He says, you should have written in your book, all hope abandon ye who enter here, of finding here firm and fair reasonings but only sophisms and painted fallacies and false day and night without stars. Uh, it, it rhymes in Italian. Um, another uh, very interesting thing that comes out in these letters, uh, almost um, in an incidental way, is something I mentioned in the last time we spoke. Uh, it turns out that uh, Shadal had a very close friend in Padua, Monsignor Nardi, who was a Catholic theologian who taught uh, canon law at the University of Padua, and yet they became good friends. They were both interested in biblical scholarship. They had a long, long correspondence with each other. Uh, Chagall was not um, unwilling to let him know when he disagreed with this uh, Monsignor Nardi about uh, elements of theology, but it didn't block them from being friends. They were uh, um, correspondents and, and good colleagues for many years, and this is something that most people probably were not aware of before I came upon it. I'd like to find out more about this friendship. I'm not sure exactly where I can find more information, but uh, that's Appendix B. Uh, let him bray. That's a, a phrase that uh, Shadal wrote to a third party. Somehow Ben Mosaic heard about it, and this is what sparked their controversy. So there we are. Dan, before we let you go, would you let us know how far along you are in translating Shadal's Deuteronomy commentary and when we might expect that publication? Um 
I wish I were a little bit farther along. I have re just recently finished the first chapter and gotten into the second chapter. There's only 33 more to go. Um, but I have, as I've gotten older and realized um, I really need to do things a little bit faster than I did at first. It took me 20 years to finish Genesis. Um, I am hoping to finish Deuteronomy within about two years. Um, that's about how long it took me to do uh, Leviticus and Numbers, and hopefully I can maintain that pace. Um, my goal after that, this is like the, the prize at the, the other side of the horizon. Um, he wrote a long and beautiful commentary on the book of Isaiah, and hopefully I will be able to tackle that as my next project. Um, as long as we have just a few minutes, I want to put you on the spot, Professor Morales. Um, I am interested and curious as how you got to be interested in Shadal. Can you tell me anything about that? Certainly. I've just wrapped up my own eight or nine year project working on a commentary on numbers, which has many difficult texts. And I'm one who learns from everyone, and I especially gleaned a lot of help and insight from Jewish commentators. It was a thrill getting to know Rashi, Nachmanides, Ibn Ezra, Hirsch, and many contemporary Jewish scholars. And so every now and then, Nuzato would be quoted by others. I remember specifically in relation to Moses' sin in Numbers 20, which we discussed, I studied that passage for months, and Luzato's funny quip kept getting quoted. I need to get to know this commentator, I said to myself. But his works were very difficult to find, especially in English translation. Another reason I'm grateful for your own labors. Well, that's very gratifying for me to hear. Um, it, it, what Something you said sounded to me like something the Shadal would have said, um, accepting truth and knowledge from wherever you find it. Uh, he was very open-minded that way, and uh, I'm glad to hear he wasn't the only one. So I'm also glad to hear that you find him uh, interesting, insightful, entertaining, and uh, hopefully that's uh, something that the public will share as well. Um, I, just one more observation. Um, something I say in my introduction to this latest volume, Shadal, you can count the different audiences that he wrote for, at least at least four of them. Um, at least one of his books was written for the non-Jewish Italian public, explaining the Jewish religion and its fundamentals. Um, he also wrote for the broad Jewish Italian public, which wasn't terribly well educated, but uh, he wanted to bring them up to speed. Um, that. That's where his uh, Bible translations were um, meant for. His other focus was writing for Jewish scholars in a much more um, uh, rarefied kind of way. He wrote those books in Hebrew. And his, as I mentioned, his um, biblical interpretations were really meant for his students, a very elite and small audience, which um, hopefully is now being expanded because what I've been trying to do, and I, I'm not the only one, there have been other scholars looking into Shadal, and what some of us have been trying to do is give him a fifth audience, which is the general English readership, uh, to bring him into much broader attention to the world, and hopefully little by little this is happening, and uh, I'm glad that you were part of it. Dan, thank you so much for your many hours of work, years of work since the 70s, bringing Shadal's scholarship to the English-speaking world, and thank you for being with us. Labor of love. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.